In this series, we will be discussing specific examples of design techniques that make a positive difference for people living with certain human conditions. The more a designer understands the client and or the community, the more effective and respectful the design will be. Welcome to Inclusive Designers Podcast. I'm your host, Janet Roach. And I'm your moderator, Carolyn Robbins. Carolyn, we have a great show to share with everyone today. But first, I am happy to say that Feedspot still has us as one of the best design podcasts on the internet. And a big thank you to you, our listeners, for that. Exactly. And I think this episode should continue to keep us on that list, too. Definitely, especially because our guest today is Pinar Gavanch, a partner at Sour Studio where they understand the importance of cover design and also what it means for inclusive designers. Fun fact, not only is their name Sour a play on the words social and urban, but it also describes their we're not going to sugarcoat it attitude. And that attitude helps her and her team tackle global design challenges using collaborative research to find the best solutions. She has some great examples that she will share. But first, let me tell you a little more about Pinar Gavanch. She is a partner at Sauer, an international award-winning hybrid design studio with a mission of addressing social and urban problems. At Sauer, Pinar leads their business and design strategy. Their work includes projects from architecture to urban design to product design. As they describe themselves, quote, we don't shy away from challenges, we embrace the discomfort. We take our time to research, synthesize, and ideate in order to generate data-inspired and purposeful design solutions." End quote. Pinar will also explain what it means to live in a VUCA world and the difference between complex and complicated systems. If, like me, you've never heard the term VUCA world before, stay tuned. Pinar will explain it. Yes, she will. And we don't want to keep anyone in suspense for too long. So let's get to it. Absolutely. And with that, here is our interview with Pinar Gavanch, design strategy expert, co-design advocate and practitioner, educator, and forever student. Hello, and thank you, Pinar, so much for joining us today on Inclusive Designers Podcast. How are you doing? Good, Janet. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. I know we just did a little overview about you, but I would love to hear in your own words who you are and what is Sour and what do you guys do? Of course. Well, I'm Pinar. I'm partner at Sour. We are a hybrid design studio with the mission of addressing social and urban problems. So as a missionless studio, we get to work on very diverse typology of work, whether that's from architecture to urban design to product design. And our mission also really calls for us to have ongoing collaborative research. So it's very much in our DNA to practice co-design because that's the only way we could actually uh, serve our mission. It would be very naive for us to believe we can tackle global challenges on our own. I think we're globally getting to that realization as well. And so that's what we're practicing. And I guess the sour is a play on the words social and urban, but we also believe it represents our attitude. (laughs) 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 We don't shy away from discomfort. We embrace being in the gray. And when we first launched, we said there's enough sugar coating in the world. So it's time to get real and be sour. So that's us. 
Interesting. I love that. I really do. It's, you know, like something like a lemon, right? It's sour, but there's something really great and refreshing about it. Yeah, it's also an acquired taste. Right. And it suits well with us because sometimes people don't understand us. What do you do exactly? Like you get to need to know us, you know? So I think in that sense, it represents us. I remember this, this was actually like fun fact. When we were first incorporating, I remember our attorney being like, noticing the foreigner names, right? And like, maybe Uh-oh. you do know what sour means, right? No. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he was very judgmental. He was very judgmental. Oh my goodness. Right. It, oh, I hope you fired him. <laughs> yeah, that might have been the last time we tried it. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Well, let's kind of hop into like what this means about co-design. I find this topic interesting. And especially when we talk about being inclusive designers, right? I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand, but it also, I think it makes us better designers. Do you want to talk a little bit about your theories and your ideas about co-design? Of course. So, you know, obviously when we talk about like definitions of co-design or participatory design practices or inclusive design, it feels like a no-brainer and very common sense, but then just because it's common sense doesn't mean it's common practice. Right. Um, so we like to go back and kind of support it also by just like, our current status quo in the world and uh, systems theory to really like go into the roots of why it also actually is a survival strategy. It's not even a nice to have anymore. So we live in a VUCA world today for people who know that or don't know that. Yeah, I was going to say, explain to our listeners what VUCA world is. (laughs) Yeah. And I find this fascinating too. Yeah. So VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And it is basically used to define the world that we live in today. And if the pandemic, the war, and all sorts of crazy things happening in the world are is not enough proof, I don't know what is. Right. So because we're in a such complex domain and it's only getting more complex, when we look into like systems theory, how we address a complex system is very, very different than a complicated system. Where in a complicated system, you go in and you analyze you call in experts, there's some like good practice recommendations, you pick one, you go with it, right? It's the world of, you know what you don't know. So you need to learn what you don't know, and you figure it out. But complex systems are the world of unknowns, you don't even know what you don't know, right? And that's the world we live in today, right? So we can't have an analysis engineering approach. And if we do, we're always either missing stuff or not testing assumptions, right? Like there's a great chance that we're leaving so much behind that we're not even aware that's there. So a complex system actually calls for probing the system and seeing reaction and therefore really adapting to that and then finally coming up with an emergent practice. So basically it calls for innovation, right? right? It calls for rapid prototyping. It calls for rapid experimentation and especially safe to fail experimentation to be able to implement within. So because having innovation, like design innovation process is necessary for the world that we live in today, the only way we can really innovate in the most proper way is through collaboration, right? right? And, you know, I think we love to read success stories on like this 
you know, big tech person just came out with this. It's never that, right? There's a huge army of people creating things. Right. It's always interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah. And it has to be embedded in our DNA, in our practice, and how design proceeds, really, in projects and product development processes. So with that, I think just collaboration basically is the only way we could really address where, like our world today. Some real problems, right? Yeah. The VUCA world. The VUCA world, and that's why we have to co-design, because collaboration is a very loosely used term. Like, even a vendor relationship is called a collaboration, where collaboration is really not that, right? Collaboration is parties are involved, but they also have shared goals. There's, like, a partnership involved, and co-design enables that partnership. Co-design treats all stakeholders as equal. It values lived experiences as much as professional experiences, And it doesn't mean, and I'm highlighting this because sometimes I get like a knee-jerk reaction from the design community to the concept of co-design. We're like, but we're the designers, you know, we can't design together. Right. We've had this conversation offline. Yeah. Is the idea that everybody thinks that they know everything or that they can get it. We do a lot with trauma-informed design, and I'm always surprised on how many people think, well, an hour lunch and learn ought to do it, right? It kind of floors me. I've spent probably just this last year alone about 1,200 hours (laughs) looking at it, studying it. But yeah, if you feel like you've got it over lunch, you know, (laughs) it's it's good for you, right? (laughs) Yeah. And also, it's such a narrow view, right? Like, to me, when a reaction comes like that, I'm realizing how we're looking at this design process through such a narrow lens. Because by co-design, we don't mean people going on Rhino together and try to 3D model together, right? Like, what we mean is authentic partnership in the process. So engaging stakeholders from beginning and not necessarily like sharing ideas and prototypes with almost ready to launch or close to finish, right? Right. Which has been the more traditional ways of us working, like really engaging in exploration, synthesizing the data together, co-ideating, and then giving prototype and idea feedback. This partnership is the process and it does need to be adapted based on the industry you're in, the geography you're in, all the stakeholders involved, like all those are determining factors on how a co-design process could happen in a project. But the principles are the same, right? Right. People are treated as partners, power is shared, and there's an authentic engagement from commencement to completion. Right. So yeah, so because of VUCA, it's the only way we can survive the world today. Right. I do find this It's so interesting. And just even in my own travels, I'm always surprised on it's, I feel like it's the proper way to think. I feel like it's something that we, in order to survive in this VUCA world, as you said, I think that that's the only way to do it. Yeah. And again, and I'm so surprised when people are so unwilling. Do you think it's just, I don't want to sound flip about this. Do you think it's sort of like old fashioned thinking or is it a control thing or what exactly do you think, like what drives people to say, no, no, I got this. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two factors. One being like we're creatures of habits. Sure. If we've been used to doing one thing one way, we want to do that. So that resistance to change might be in place. Right. But I think there's also the myth around co-creation or co-design. Like it would take more time. It would be more costly. 
right? Right. So those two uh, biases towards the process could be a turn off, I think. Sure. Again, man, it's so wrong, right? Like those who practice know that with a co-design process, you're like 50% ahead of the game because the insights you're generating are so much more meaningful and accurate for the project that you're potentially eliminating so much cost that will come up in the back end or even like mid project if you don't do it. And also that speeds you up in the design process. All designers would agree that if we have a brilliant design brief that helps in the design process, right? So how we reframe the problem, how we identify the problem and create a framework for designers through co-design process. I think that really also speeds up and informs the design so accurately. So I think we need to really change our mindset about what we don't know, the fear, right? Right. So the fear of like trying something new, it might cost more, it might take more and really just prove ourselves that we're wrong, right? Right. Like it's not necessarily the case. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you come out with a better product, right? Yeah. That's the sort of the ultimate goal here that makes so much sense to me, you know, and especially with the human experience within the built environment. 100%. It just, right, makes us happier and healthier and wiser and smarter and- 100%. And likely even even more wealthy, you know? Yeah. So it comes down to, even though it might be more money up front, that one of those things, right? Yeah, and it's not even that much more money, right? Right. I think like compared to what the end results could actually be to correct it or to do another round of prototyping. Like all those costs are higher than engaging diverse participants and compensating people for their time, right? So I think we need to really understand that. And it's interesting because if you go to a person and say, would you do something very risky or with high budget without validating your assumptions, they would say no. But not doing co-design is basically that because there is no way as humans and in our own teams, and no matter how big of a company you are, you won't all have that diverse representation needed for projects. Right. Like never in your team only can represent that. Yeah. So we're already going in with assumptions, our biases, prejudices. We're human. All of us have it. Right. Conscious, unconscious, right? So. Well, that's just it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when... A person would say like, no, of course I would validate assumptions, but then could follow that process, forgetting that that's what we're doing when we're not doing co-design. We just like move on to design with our own assumptions and biases and not even realizing that potentially, because it's not like designers are malicious people, like let's exclude others. I don't know. I've met a few, Pinar. I'm just going to throw that out there. So... All right, uh, but you know, actually, that's a whole other episode. It's a whole other episode, exactly. Malicious designers, and well, I mean, but this brings up a couple of different points. One is this new program that, or program, or what do we decide to call it? You can call it framework if you want. Framework, okay. Yeah. You have this framework and it's called Why Language Matters, right? Mm. And when we talk about DEI, and I think DEI should also add an A on there for accessibility, but, you know, we're, we're getting there. But 
I would love for you to talk to our listeners a little bit about this, and because I think it's so important. Let me just give you a brief example as to, like you said, we have our own biases and our own things that we're taught that maybe are just wrong. For example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I was under the impression we were calling it the Ukraine. And I was told, no, no, <laughs> pretty quickly on that the, you don't say the Ukraine and and how it's demeaning. And it was part of this thing that was, if I understand it correctly, you know, it was sort of to degrade Ukrainians. And I had no idea, right? Like that was something that for me was such an eye opener. But you have this beautiful, well-displayed framework about why language matters and talking about it in terms of equality. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we recently published that just because in the end, all the processes that we're involved in, doesn't matter if you're in design, R&D, supply chain, they're very human processes because they're driven by humans. Even AI is driven by humans, right? right? Like AI has the exact biases that its creators carry, which is funny because we actually with with this, like, I just want to like quick caveat when this like mid journey visual exploration started to happen and we would just dump in a bunch of different words to see what visual is going to come up. We put in people and architecture in the word and nothing. AI wasn't able to bring up anything. Isn't that depressing? (laughs) 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 There was just like, there was an astronaut and a weird like architecture, but like what, we were like, what? Like there's nothing that AI could come up in people in architecture. Very insightful for our industry. That's really insightful, right? Yeah, because AI is basically scanning anything out there on that and then like comes up with a visual and it wasn't able to find much, which is uh, sad, but true, but also very sheer realization and we need to do something about it. Right. So basically, I think because everything that is out there is driven or led or managed by humans, we, in the end, have to properly communicate with each other, right? So when we did a a publication on like co-design frameworks too, like one thing we did mention is understanding positionality. Where are we all coming from? What is our own biases, again, prejudices, experiences that might have impact positive or negative in the process, just being aware of that, right? Like going into any process. And then how do we distribute power also? Like maybe there's a very strong dominant figure in the team. How do we make sure they're not leading the entire conversation and people feel intimidated and not speak up and all of that, right? Right, yeah. So the initial step is really just like recognizing the positionality of the team and also who's not here, right? who's missing, right? why are they missing? Right. So like really just doing a quick reflection on the team and status before going in and you can do this throughout the project, too. And then the next step is the communication. Right. Like once the team is there, how do you communicate with each other? Many people, if you're working on an international project, language is a huge barrier. Right. Right. Trying to understand each other. It's like what is sour? Yeah, exactly. What is, do you know what sour means? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, one like simple phrase in your culture might be totally offensive in another's. Correct. So there's cultural differences, experiential differences, things that we might just be more sensitive to, like certain trigger words based on our own experience, ability, whatever that is. Right. Right. So once we understand people better, that also helps us 
to think about how we communicate with one another. And it's just something that we need to exercise on and just be mindful of the principles like on an ongoing basis, both for our internal processes first, and then on how we're communicating things out to the world. I think what fascinates me with all this like creative agency capabilities and like powerhouse creative agencies out there, brands follow universal messaging in so many things, which is sometimes fine. Like in the brand identity, you want universal messaging, right? Sure. Like you want to keep things consistent. But then when you launch products, we don't recognize that we need to adapt language and communication based on both the geography that we're in, but also the generation that we're like appealing to or speaking to or just different personalities and characteristics that intersectionalities people might have. Right. How do we appeal to that? How do we make sure things resonate with people? A great example is we've been doing this project that we started mid-year on exploring how people adopt sustainable practices, right? And this is for a consumer goods company that launches a lot of products with more environmental friendly packaging or formula and things like that. And yet they don't see quick interest or adoption of these products and eventually they get discontinued. Right. Right. So the product is not the problem. It could be. It might have lousy packaging or labeling, whatever. That's like one other design problem. Hmm. But also when these things come out, how do we launch it? How do we communicate to people? It's so, so, so important. Right. And so in understanding that, we did really in-depth interviews, like one-on-one interviews and dyads in 11 markets from Colombia to France to Canada and in Lebanon, US, let me see, Mexico, Greece, there are a few more. And interview, like talking to people about sustainability in general, right? And the people you assume that might care least are like composting. They're like way advanced than I am. And like, I consider myself a responsible consumer. I'm like, wow, I don't do that. Yeah. And then why do I even have that perception that she might not care or he might not care, right? Like I'm calling out on my own bias. Right. And that was like a very sheer visualization also to the client too, because we would compile those and basically create a short documentary. Right. But what we also did, we interviewed people from their offices in the same markets too, because if we really want to achieve a human-centered design, we have to interview both the people who are going to use it and the people who are going to create it, right? Because you can't necessarily dump all the responsibility on the consumer and you can't necessarily just have this very high level, sophisticated, all like insider knowledge infused messaging to put it out into the world and expect people to adopt it, right? right. So it really had to become this common understanding. So that common understanding can only be studied if we basically co-create with everybody involved, the client itself and the consumers. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say back to the whole idea of co-design. Exactly. I just want to give our listeners, make sure everybody knows that we'll have all of the information for Pinar and all the stuff that we're talking about on our website at inclusivedesigners.com. That's first things first. And I actually have a background in marketing and I, I want to tell our listeners a real quick kind of cute story. And maybe at some point, Carolyn will actually just cut it out of the program. But here we go. 
So the funniest thing that I ever heard of was, I guess, in one particular country, you put the picture of what is in the product, right? So whatever is the products on the inside of the jar or can or whatever, you put the picture on the front. And I think it was like Gerber's, I mean, did not understand this and had the picture of the baby on the, <laughs> the jar. So, right. So the thought, oh. right. And, you know, obviously people did not do their homework, right? So that's a notorious example. And then the other one was, it was a car in Spain and it kind of dates me like maybe early or mid eighties or so. And it was the Nova car. Okay. And in Spanish, I believe that means no go. (laughs) Right. So, you know, again, simple kind of like, oops. (laughs) Right. Oh man. I have a recent one. I saw the like surface cleaner uh, out in like the market and then it said like ocean bound plastic. And I was like, so when I use this, this goes to ocean. <laughs> ocean like <laughs> That's what's happening. Oh, it's a good way to like demotivate me from buying. That's what they're trying to do. Honestly, that's what I thought. They're clever. I think they really hit the nail on the head with that. <laughs> well, well, that's just it. You know, like, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, co-design people. Pinar is telling us, telling the world, this is why this stuff is so important. So anyways, I'm sorry, I interrupted you about why language matters and this framework that you put together. No, it's basically like this type of practice really helps feed understanding of that. Because in one diet we saw and we were doing on purpose, like different generations, abilities, experiences when we're like recruiting all these people. And there's this like example where one millennial living with his parents was saying, oh, like my mom doesn't care about sustainability. I think this is in like Mexico. And yet he's describing his mother like consumer behaviors, she's definitely more sustainable than I am, whatever we call like sustainable. She repurposes what she's using. She isn't consuming as much. She is very good at like upcycling things. She's such a like environmentally friendly consumer. But when you tell her sustainability, she's like, I don't use those products. Like, what are those? Right? Because the word doesn't resonate with her, right? Interesting. Yeah. Like, it's just a, what is this like new word that came up? But if you tell her this is less waste, she understands that and she totally respects that. Right. But when you say like, be more sustainable, she was like, I don't, like, I don't, this is like a new thing. This is like your gender. That seems like a lot of work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the same right. thing. And like, right. I'm like, so you're than most people I know but okay yeah exactly yeah. that's interesting right and so the language really does play a large part of all of this 100% and so yeah so again just you know for our listeners it's all on the website please go take a look and then you know you and I have had like I said a little side conversation about when we're talking about code design and the importance of designers to listen not just to their clients, but to the people around them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Otherwise, it's being designed in a vacuum, correct? Yeah. So, yeah. Active listening is a skill that needs to be practiced, polished, developed. Yes. It's like exercising. You don't become a good listener and like, oh, yeah, I listened. Like, no, I've been to like so many workshops in like corporations where we're doing like a design innovation workshop or like a co-ideation workshop. And I would witness it sometimes feels like, oh, like they need hearing aids and they're not wearing them. <laughs> like they would speak over each other. Right. 
or they're just like waiting for their turn to speak and really did not listen to you. They were just being polite and like being quiet, right? Like it feels like that so many times and I'm kind of like, wow, how do we get stuff done in the world? Well, this is also, this is why we have a lot of problems and I can only hope that I'm doing an okay job listening to you today. That's my, my hope. Right now. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. But this is active listening. They're like reacting to what I'm saying too. Like, you know, and I think it's important to like understand that we are all responsible of that. Whatever we do in life, designers, not designers. Right. Right. And it's a practice. Like, I don't think anybody is like born like a great listener. Like we're as kids, <laughs> terrible listeners. Right. Like it's right. just going to be acquired later in life. So we need to like polish it, practice it, improve it. Right. So I think there's number one that and number two Sometimes designers actually need to get out of the way. Sometimes we're not the right people that should be listening because we don't know what to do with that information. Right. So like, for example, when we team up with people with disabilities on projects, like 90% of the times an occupational therapist would be facilitating the conversations because how would I understand the implications of disabilities and how that is necessarily having the impact on that interaction? Right. Right. I need the right person to be able to communicate to me in the way that I need to hear. Right. And the other times that that person is not facilitating, sometimes, especially when there's distrust in uh, communities, then, you know, rightfully so, many overlooked or underserved communities have huge distrust towards institutions or corporations for various reasons. All of the above, right. (laughs) All of the above. So in those cases, we would actually have trusted community-based organizations facilitate sessions, right? Mm -hmm. Or like sometimes they're not intimidated by us or they're okay to talk to us just because like we're this like a much smaller boutique design studio that more like coming in like almost like a mediator. (laughs) So they would be open to talking to us, but do they really trust us? Would they really share like what's the most meaningful, you know? So like sometimes it's just about knowing that should we be the ones listening, right? Like maybe we... We could definitely try to listen. We can be present, but we also need someone in the room who has practiced listening and hearing the community. So I think depending on the circumstance is really about just like, how do we be better listeners and should we be the one listening or should we be the only one in the room listening? Also curating that process based on the audience you're working with or in the project context you're working in. Yeah, so true. Like I was consulting in a design for a women's shelter and I found it interesting. One of the workers that was there and she was in on this meeting and I was hoping to go around the table in order to talk to them and hear their experiences so we can provide them with, you know, some really good design ideas and what have you. Yeah. And the woman sitting next to her said to me, oh, she's only been here two weeks, like basically and kind of like put her hand on her arm. Like it was almost like a do not speak, do not talk about it. And all I could think to myself was, is that, Mm. you know, yeah, even in two weeks, I'm sure she has a lot to say, right? I thought the other, you know, the woman that was telling her and telling me that she doesn't have any voice and she doesn't have anything to say. Wow. And all this other stuff wasn't important because she'd only been there for two weeks. But it was also, I mean, it was quite the show. I mean, she put her arm on the other woman's arm like that was a do not speak and this is a women's battered shelter like you know, 
<laughs> and I thought to myself, oh my God. what in the world did I just witness? And myself and uh, my colleague, when we walked out of there, you know, we shared. The observation to you. The observations. To be like, I want to talk to that person. And now I want to talk to her more. Yeah. <laughs> like, great. yeah. like the fact that you told me I can't. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm going to need to talk to her. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the importance of ethnographic research, too, in general, right? Listening also is not enough. Sometimes it's very much observation and understanding context and, like, dynamics. Right. And that's why we love dyads, right? Because no. how people talk next to each other sometimes is very different than how they speak one-on-one. Right. And also, like, I remember this example, like, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off, but made me think of like, no, 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 I can listen to you all day. Power of observation. Yeah, active listening in arts. <laughs> <laughs> I am telling you right now, even if I was washing the dishes, I'd still be active listening. Oh. So go ahead. Yes. Thank you. Like we were doing this workshop with MIT Age Lab and there's like a room of 80 plus year old men, mm. uh, which was like, a very fun group mm-hmm. to like have uh-huh. a design workshop with. Yeah. But, I mean, it was super fun. Just to be clear, we love them. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's sort of standard, typical. I love like where elders and like kids in my experience are people who give it to you straight. Like, right. <laughs> whatever they think. Right. And I'm like, you're a great co-creator. We need more of that. Yeah. Yeah. And not to like, you know, sugarcoat things. <laughs> anyway, but so they're like, they're called, I think they're lifestyle leaders. That's what they're called. Interesting. Yeah. And they consult and advise on various different projects. So I was asking them if they had any issue dressing up in the morning, like is dressing a problem to them? And except for one person who clearly needs caregivers help to be able to dress himself. Sure. They were all like, no, got it. So I asked, it was winter. I asked, like, can you then put on your jacket and take it off for me? So, you know, like imagine yourself going out of the house and you're wearing your jacket on is more like, I don't know, a 20 second act, at least for me, right? For With my own understanding and bias, I would think like this is going to be quick. For the entire room to do that, I think we like settled. It was definitely close to like six minutes. So to me, that's not okay, right? Like observing that was like, this is a design problem. It's not your fault, right? right. Like if you have, let's say, limited range of motion, and you're not able to like put your arm through a jacket that easily and it takes you several times or you put one through, how do you get the other? If these are all hard challenges in like the dressing process, to me, that is a design problem that needs to be addressed. Whereas for them, they normalized it, right? Right. Like they were just like, it's part of aging. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is what happens when you're older. Yeah. Right. right. Which is totally human right we normalize things we get used to things yeah even like really traumatic things we normalize it just for as the coping mechanism yeah exactly yeah so that's also why it's really important and i know we talked about this before to really observe understand be present listen to the words but also listen to the behaviors like what you're seeing like what you saw is a very powerful example of how that power sharing is not happening in so many environments, right? right? If you're like with a gesture, like being shushed. So I think we have to understand active listening is important, but diversifying your means and how you're listening is also very, very important. Right. Yeah. I'll give you another example. I'm helping. My dad is 87. And in order for him to continue to live independently, we're doing a whole bunch of stuff. We're adding more grab bars. We're adding more ways for him to get around. And he would like some sort of little mirror light source, whatnot, next to the light source. 
next to the window when he's shaving. Hmm. And I kind of don't understand why between the window, (laughs) it's morning, right? He's going to be shaving. Not at like six o'clock at night when it's pitch black this time of year. Yeah. So there's the light source from the window, big window. There's the light source from the mirror. There's the overhead light. And so why does he... And I think, you know, again, I know our eyes yellow as we get older. And so I'm sure he is having issues seeing himself. I get that. Mm -hmm. But I want to know what his routine is. What, how does he go about this? Like, is there something else that we can do? And I have other people sort of like boots on the ground, sort of non-designers that are, well, contractor that are helping do this. And they're just like, well, have you found a a little light yet? And I'm like, no, I want to be able enough to see what he's doing to warrant this. Maybe there's another way to go about this. And I think that they think I'm out of my mind. Like that it's sort of whatever Jack wants, Jack gets. I get that. That's my father's name. You know, like I feel like there's maybe another way to approach it. And maybe it is just a light, right? I don't want to diminish his discussion in this or thoughts in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also want to see what he's doing that makes him him think that this is something that he needs yeah right you know and, and again it, it, it's probably right just so we're clear in case dad you're listening you're always right but like <laughs> at the end of the day like i just want jack you deserve the best jack you deserve all the best exactly and so you know and i think that that's such an important piece and then the other one was is that when we We're trying to figure out how to put new grab bars in his already complicated shower. And it was interesting to me. Sometimes you got to think these things through and like actually stand there and physically kind of go through the motions. Yeah. And so they were going to take off one part of the shower. And I said, but the problem is, is he falls from that like because the door is right there then now he's in front of the door and so we can't now open the door while he's on the ground yeah right so and they were like oh right and you know yeah so you have to kind of get in there and get all dirty and yeah and it goes back to i think designers not thinking that they have the the time or the money to do that i mean but some of this stuff is so important for health and well-being so yeah And also, if we don't have these considerations, how are we going to grow in our profession? Correct. Yeah. You know, like, to me, it's just, uh, I don't say lazy, maybe sometimes it is lazy, but also it's just the... I think it, well, I, don't you think that there's some laziness? I totally do. I mean, there has to be, there has to be like the budget. I feel like for a creative person, it's an excuse sometimes where like some things, I mean, yeah, you didn't have like written out, spelled out in your scope of work that you will sit in a shower for half an hour to like understand something, but it is necessary like for you to really just do better design. And I don't want this to like also become an excuse for people. Yes. Like inclusive design is not universal design. Inclusive design is one size fits one, right? So it's really inclusive of the person needs. And the idea is that as you design for the edge case, you would actually include a broader audience, but also it is very important to understand that 
I mean, we get excited about AI and technology, but like with growing technology, that's going to help this also scale, right? So because the biggest criticism we get, well, such custom work, how are we going to scale this? Like there's no way we're going to be inclusive, but that's only because of our own limitation. Like how many factors or restrictions in the design brief Mm -hmm. our brains can manage on its own? Uh Like if you have like 20 things we need to watch out for, we're already like, no way, let's eliminate 10 of that. (laughs) But this is actually the excitement I have around AI where... Well, a machine is going to do all those considerations for you now, right? Like there's a lot of conversation around participatory design in order to create inclusive AI. But I think we also need to discuss more and more the reverse where like how AI will actually empower inclusive design. We're actually working with NVIDIA and WPP on a simulator. Explain to our listeners what WPP is. Yeah, a creative agency, a global creative agency Mm -hmm. and NVIDIA has this platform Omniverse that really enables us to simulate things. So right now the simulator is just a hands where the ability of it, we can alter. So I have like full dexterity and fine motor skills. We can reduce that and see how that interaction changes with a 3D model. Wow. So how I'm lifting up a glass now might look completely different then, right? So not to replace co-creation, But to really be able to create rapid prototyping and understand what design features we need to watch out for from the beginning. The only reason why you're having that challenge in that shower is that because everything else in that shower hasn't been designed with the consideration of those accessibility needs. From the get-go. From the get-go. Right. Exactly. You're adapting it. You're trying to hack it to make it work. Sure. And that's challenging. It is challenging. Yeah. Thank you. So in that sense, yeah, it's super challenging. Thank you for that. Right. Jack, if you heard us. Jack. Janet is trying. I'm trying. (laughs) I know. But there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And yeah, Well, without going into that particular rabbit hole, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. It's basically like we need to go through that experience personally as designers ourselves in order to understand, well, okay, how do we scale this? How do we iterate this design process more frequently so we include more and more, right? So Unless we go through that, like, suffering of, like, I don't want to say suffering. It could sometimes be fun. But also (laughs) sitting in the shower for 30 minutes maybe is not fun. (laughs) We need to go through that experience to generate the insights into, like, how do we go, like, evolve from here? Like, how do we grow? So it is necessary for all designers to go through that. It is necessary. Well, in a true way to be very transparent here, I actually have taken a shower in that bathroom and it's just the design. It was kind of done sort of like in the late 90s, but like even that, it was just a poor design. I mean, they didn't even have a place to put your towels. Like why? What? what, what, Hello? (laughs) I didn't even realize that until like I'm standing there looking around. and I'm like, why isn't there like like (laughs) something? Exactly. Well, I feel like I see would see that in 2022 in New York City, you know, so I don't think it's like about the era. I think it's the construction industry. I think it was right. They were like, whatevs. And our like, industry in general. Yeah. <laughs> not a, whatevs. Not a big deal. 
By code, we're like complying with code. By code, we don't need a towel rack. Exactly. Exactly. We're good. (laughs) Baseline. I mean, it's it's a beautiful bathroom, but it's just, I mean, it's just really not very functional. Yeah. So I know we're kind of coming to the end of our our time together, I think. I I don't want to say goodbye to you, Pinar, just yet. So (laughs) I was hoping, like, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about Open Style Lab? Is that something you guys want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I serve on the board of Open Style Lab and leading strategic partnerships there. And Open Style Lab is a nonprofit organization that was initiated at MIT and now is based in New York City with the mission to make style accessible for people of all abilities. And with that, it's also a great case study. And I think in itself, it has been an organization that really inspired the design industry on what co-creation can look like. Because even at its like origin at MIT, when it started as a social service project, it brought together occupational or physical therapists, engineers, and designers with people with disabilities to co-create together throughout a course of a 10-week to find inclusive solutions. So that model, I think, became an example to so many industries in so many different ways that I'm very proud of the team there and just be part of it. And I personally learned from it so much, so, so much. And I think even like as sour, we learned it's more about how co-creation can be practiced than anything else. And yeah, for the listeners, if you want to check it out, our most recent summer program in 2022 was sponsored by Genentech, where OSL co-created with the SMA community. And thanks to Genentech and Big Pharma Money, we had a, <laughs> we actually was able to showcase that co-creation during fashion week in new york fashion week how cool so uh it was the first fashion show of the week too yeah which really anchored the conversation wow and if you google it you would be able to find information on that yeah and the intelligence built in in all the garments that you wouldn't even know unless you read about it so yeah i encourage everyone to check it out yeah Well, again, we'll have the link on our website, inclusivedesigners.com, for sure. But I just thought I would ask you about it. Like, that sounds just quite amazing. Pinar, is there anything that you want to add? Is there anything else that you feel like we're missing? Is there something you're like, you know what, I really need to say this part about designers and co-designing and collaboration? And is there anything else, any kind of other notes you want to hit on? I guess quickly I can talk about good to have attitude to practice co-design. Like a bad attitude? I couldn't help myself. (laughs) I could not help myself. Just be sour. Sour, sour. yes, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Like three words, like really, first like we talk about reflexivity, like reflecting on yourself and always, right? Like to do a self-check, it's good for your own personal mental health, but it's also good for your practice. Also keeping an elastic attitude and what I mean by that is like knowing that your teams might need to stretch based on the project you're working on. Sometimes we have project teams that are bigger than our own studio team just because we have to bring in the right people for a project. So practicing that elasticity for each project I think is important. And a little bit of being agnostic and I don't mean in a religious way, although that's totally up to you if you want to do that. (laughs) I mean it more like an outcome agnostic. Of course, we have client briefs and commissions and sometimes very clear asks, but also we need to understand that throughout co-creation, we might land on better ideas 
we might need to reframe the problem, right? The discovery is so big in co-creation that being a little bit of outcome agnostic and being comfortable with that grayness is actually good for you. Right, yeah. So that's just what I want to highlight. And yeah, we we consider ourselves forever students, forever learners. So we're happy to like collaborate and learn from everybody too. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so, it's such an important part too. And again, going back to that, you know, people talking about trauma-informed design, they feel like they can figure it all out after a lunch and learn. But I said that 1,200 hours, that was just me absorbing new information. Yeah. That's not all the other hours I've worked on the actual projects for this. Exactly. So it's so important to be, like you said, elastic, to be able enough to understand this and whatever this is. Yeah. And to really kind of make sure that you learn about it too like even just for today i thought because you know again we had had this conversation prior and so i bought john silber who was the president of boston university when i was actually there and he had put into bu something like a 10 million square feet of new construction wow. right which is for anybody that's a lot right yeah i mean he oversaw it he wasn't wielding a, a hammer by any means of the imagination <laughs> yeah, yeah but and it was interesting because his father was a um architect and so i think he had some interest in it so he wrote this book and i did read it in order to be more informed to interview you because he talks about the absurdity of some of the architects that put these buildings together won't mention any names but we all seen it we've all seen these pieces of architecture (laughs) you know you know (laughs) you know you know and you know you know when you see it oh yeah and that was an ego thing right that's a you know look you know like this is the statement i'm making a statement it's a statement piece yeah right you know and i guess there's a place for that but sometimes you know maybe an art (laughs) yeah maybe (laughs) exactly I mean, if other people are going to use it, maybe not. Well, that's just it. I mean, unless you're like designing a palace for a king, (laughs) maybe that's like where you make it a person specific interest. But I don't understand how you can treat a building like a sculpture. If it's like open to public, it's going to be you know, used by people, like, how do you disregard that? That I don't understand. Right. I respect all the work that goes into that. Of course. No disrespect to that. Of course. I think the name of the book is like Absurdity of Architecture or something like that. You know, (laughs) I'm not promoting his book. (laughs) But it's interesting. There's also, you know, designing for human health. We talk about some of these designs all the time. And we also did a podcast with Don Ruggles, right? And he talks about the importance of beauty and architecture and how it makes us feel and makes us, you know, happy. But if you see this thing that's just like <laughs> going every which way and sideways, it's just, you know, like, again, not mentioning any names. <laughs> <laughs> but nope, yeah. nope, nope. We're not bitter. We're sour. <laughs> we're sour. Yay. <laughs> we're not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> we're sour. That's great. <laughs> like 20 years from now, we're having another interview, Janet, and you're interviewing me. I'm like completely bitter at that point. Like those people. <laughs> those people. You know who you are. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's going to be a whole thing. Oh my goodness. Go into bloopers. Like we should have an entire like, bloopers. <laughs> like, I've always wanted a blooper reel. <laughs> I would love that. I, I don't yeah, take yeah. myself that seriously, clearly. So I definitely encourage for the promotion of this episode. Oh my goodness. That was brilliant. So, but anyways, 
Pinar, thank you so much. I love the fact that I have an opportunity and, and a platform to talk to people like yourself and forward thinkers and people who have really some really great, great ideas and are trying to change the course of how we design. And, and so I, I just, I, again, I could just talk to you all day. Please, please, please think about coming back. Maybe we'll do a Pinar too. Oh. Like, you know, like we'll, we'll do one of those. The ongoing talk show. And I'll, and I'll keep practicing my active listening in the meanwhile. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jen. You're an incredible listener and a conversationalist. And it just felt like an organic conversation and not like a script interview, which I don't do well in those anyway i feel like i <laughs> if it's like very um you know too rigid well you know how many times did i have to figure out it's framework you're like it's just framework say framework <laughs> use the word framework <laughs> right oh so yes there is that too right exactly oh yeah i totally understand it was such a treat as always i feel like anytime we all connect it's just like this <laughs> pinar before i let you go is there anything that you want to add yeah. So I encourage everyone to just like reflect on your practice today. And if you have doubts or questions, just reach out to the people you think might have an answer there. Be very open to collaboration and be sour. <laughs> be sour. Perfect. There you go. Oh, there you go. From now on, I'm going to wear like a sweater that says be sour. So I don't keep you should get t-shirts that says be sour and mugs. I think it's going to happen. Our team has been asking it too, so I think we're going to do it. <laughs> Be sour. I got over the trauma of the like attorney. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to throw it down before we leave that are you guys still in Brooklyn? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yeah. right. I hail from Brooklyn. I lived in on Garden Place Aww. and Sydney Place growing up as a kid, and yeah, it, uh, so we're doing a little shout out. Yeah. We, we do occasional shout out because we, we did one with Judy Human, like because uh, she grew up in Brooklyn too, or you know, or uh, born in Brooklyn, I should say. Yeah. So we're, we're always like have a little yeah. posse of us from from Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Representing Brooklyn, we're based in Brooklyn Navy Yard. Representing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Pinar, thank you so much. This has been really terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Carolyn. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I find what Pinar and her group are doing to be so fascinating. She is, well... Sour? Yes, but in a great way. <laughs> you know I couldn't resist. <laughs> I get it. Seriously, though, Pinar and I really enjoy discussing topics of great importance for inclusive designers. I love her ideas that we need to have attitude, elasticity, and agnostic approaches when we are co-designing. Our own biases and unconscious assumptions really do not help us when designing for the built environment, or anywhere for that matter. And that whole concept of why language matters, we need to keep cultural, situational, and ability differences in mind when we design and when we talk to each other. I agree. And I think Pinar is right that designers need to understand that through co-design, they might land on better ideas. They should be very open to collaboration, and if needed, to reframe the problem to find the best solution. 
and I loved what she said. We should all be forever students and forever learners. Exactly. And we will share the link for how to contact Pinar and, of course, the links to all the innovative work that she and her team at Sauer are doing and also for many of the other things that were mentioned along the way during this discussion, all on our website at inclusivedesigners.com. That's inclusivedesigners.com. A big thank you to Pinar. And thanks to all of you as well for listening. Along with all the regular places you get your podcasts, you can also find us on YouTube as, you guessed it, Inclusive Designers Podcast. And of course, if you like what you hear, feel free to go to our website and hit that Patreon button or the link to our GoFundMe page. And now you can also find us on the Feedspot list of Best Design Podcasts. Yes, you can. And as our motto says, stay well and stay well informed. As always, thank you for stopping by. We'll see you next time. Yes, thanks again.